When I was in fourth grade, my parents sent me off to my very first away-from-home summer camp. It was called Island Lake Dirt Bike Camp, because that's exactly what 10-year-olds need to learn how to do, ride motorcycles. And I remember being very apprehensive and nervous on the drive up. And my parents likewise felt similarly. And we got to the camp and we said our goodbyes. And I walked over by myself to my cabin and put my bag on my bunk and opened it up to find that my mom had wrapped carefully each of my outfits together so that I wouldn't mistakenly wear the wrong shorts with the wrong t-shirt. I think she was surprised to find when I came home all the outfits were still carefully wrapped together. And one pair of jeans was badly grass-stained. I remember being in the cabin, not knowing these boys that were with me, and feeling like I didn't know if I was going to be able to make it. But our cabin counselor came in, and he said, Guys, we're going to go explore the camp for a minute. And he took us out and walked us down to the lake and showed us this massive inflatable blob and told us that we would get to lay on that and be launched into the lake. He walked us to the snack shop and told us that we could have as much candy as we wanted. He showed us the arts and crafts center, but explained to us that we wouldn't be doing arts and crafts. Instead, we'd be making Pinewood Derby cars and strapping rockets to them and firing them across the field. And finally, he showed us the garage filled with the motorcycles. I quickly forgot about home. I was no longer nervous, but instead I was excited for the, what the week might hold. And over the next few days, I started to learn how to ride a dirt bike. And it wasn't nearly as hard as I expected or nearly as scary as I thought it might be. And on the third day, we were ready to take the bikes out on the trails. And so our leader took a group of 10, 10-year-olds and we took off into the woods. And I remember this one particular trail was very steep and we were making our way up this large hill and on the one side the hill continued going up and on the other side of the trail it plummeted down into bushes and trees below. And we were biking up quickly and my friend in front of me crashed. And so instinctively I swerved as hard as I could to the right. And I began plummeting down the hill on my bike, going through bushes and rocks, holding on for dear life until my front tire finally met its end as it slammed into a trunk of a tree and I went flying over the handlebars into the bush below. My counselor ran down to me and checked up on me and found that I was, I was bruised and I was cut and I was crying and he threw me on his motorcycle and drove me as fast as he could to the medical station. Fortunately, I didn't have any serious wounds or injuries, but I remember as they bandaged me up and sent me back to my cabin to recover how lonely I felt. And I sat on my bed by myself, embarrassed that I had crashed my motorcycle, scared to ever ride one again, wishing that I was home, uncomfortable with the gauze and the neosporin. And I began to cry. I wanted so badly to leave the camp. I wanted so badly to be back home with the people I was comfortable with, with the place that I had found as a refuge for the first 10 years of my life. Many of us have had this feeling. We miss home so badly that we feel sick. We miss our loved ones so much that our heart aches. This is the feeling that the psalmist in Psalm 84 has. 
His soul yearns and even faints for home. Except his home is unlike ours. His home is the dwelling place of the Lord. He longs to be with his God and his creator. And every part of him wishes that he could just be there right now. You see, in a contemporary context, it's easy for us to assume that the psalmist is talking about heaven here. To assume when the psalmist talks about God's dwelling place that indeed he is talking about heaven and and the future with God in communion with him. But the reality is that this psalm is very literal. And we hear a very familiar identity, the identity of a pilgrim. This psalmist is one of many Israelite pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. You see, three times a year, there were things called pilgrimage festivals, where all the Israelites that lived abroad would make the trek back home to Jerusalem in order to celebrate with their community, to feast together, to worship their God, and to make sacrifices before him in his presence. And you might ask, why is Jerusalem so important? Why not just go to their local synagogue or their local temple? As many of you know, Solomon has erected a glorious temple in Jerusalem. He has spared no expense with the materials or the labor to create this this majestic dwelling place for the Lord. And in 1 Kings chapter 8... We hear the story of the priests bringing the Ark of the Covenant into this temple. Christening the temple itself. Bringing their most holy of holy artifacts into the dwelling place of the Lord. And this is what happens. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Quite literally, God's presence dwelt in this temple. In this holy of holy places separated from the courts with a thick curtain. A room so holy and sacred that only the highest of the high priests might enter on special festival occasions. And so these pilgrims, spending months away from the temple, months away from Jerusalem, would make the trek back in order that they might commune with their God via the advocacy of their priests. We hear a very familiar story. A man that is is trapped under the law. This Israelite being away from the temple for so long is likely being careful to abide by the rules and regulations, by the Hebrew covenant, and by the laws of his God. And each day he does so, but he feels this dryness, this separation from God. And in the midst of that dryness, he longs for more. He longs to feel God's presence. He longs to enter into his courts. He wishes he could just be like a sparrow that makes his nest In the temple rafters. And so he makes this trek back with other pilgrims. Celebrating the trials of the journey. And anticipating this glorious day. Many of us have said the same thing. My faith feels dry. 
I don't feel God like I used to feel God. He's not present in my life. I don't have that energy. When I first became a believer, I was so excited. I was passionate about what God was doing in my life. I was passionate about his scriptures. It was easy to read this Bible. I got lost in worship as I bowed before him. But now, now it feels like I'm just following after a book of lists and chores. Now God has gone far away from me. But the difference between ourselves and this pilgrim is that unlike the pilgrim, distance is not the problem here. This feeling is not a reflection of the actual physical distance between ourselves and God, but rather a reflection of the state and health of our heart. Because in Mark 15, we hear and see a beautiful symbol. Mark 15 is an account of Christ as he suffers on the cross. And at the completion of his suffering, we hear this beautiful picture. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. That same curtain that contained the Lord's presence in Jerusalem was torn in two, symbolizing that now God's spirit is now covering over this earth, that God's spirit is finding a new dwelling place, a new temple. And God's spirit may now dwell in the temple that is his believers. You see, this is a picture of where God dwells today. He is not far. It does not require a pilgrimage to find him. Rather, he has made a room for himself in our souls, in our hearts. And he longs for us to desire him with the same homesickness that the pilgrim in Psalm 84 did. It is a great privilege, one that I'm sure this pilgrim wished he could have had, but one that so often we take for granted. There's a story about two men that embarked on an adventure. They wanted to explore new heights, uncharted territory. And so they packed their bags with food and water and all the supplies that they would need for this great hike and set off into the wilderness. As they continued hiking, they lost track of where they were going. The trail became thin and hard to see. And they found themselves wandering aimlessly. Apprehensive as their rations began to dwindle. They became hungry and thirsty. And one day, at the epitome of their hunger, in complete dehydration, they sat down at the base of a tree, accepting their fate. And as the men leaned back on the tree, their eyes were opened. And they saw this glorious fruit that hung above. 
The men quickly jumped up and pulled the apple from the tree and took a bite. And with that one bite, a wave flew over them. They were no longer hungry. Their thirst was completely quenched. It was like they had just eaten a feast in which they could gorge themselves on any of their desires. They were renewed with a new energy that they had never experienced before. You see, this fruit was not a normal fruit. This fruit was unlike anything anyone had ever experienced in this world. And so one man quickly gathered as much of the fruit as he could into his bag and set back off for home. Upon finding his way home, he set his apples into the cupboard and began living his life just as he had before. Each morning he would open the cupboard and take a bite of the fruit and feel its refreshment and then go about his daily duties. Except as the days and the weeks continued to go on, the fruit no longer carried the same fulfillment. The fruit no longer carried that same refreshment as it had when he was lost and alone in the wilderness. Until finally, one day, he opened the cupboard and was met with the foul and putrid smell of rotten apples. And so he threw them away, assuming that that refreshment that he had once found in these apples was simply a product of his weariness. And he went about his life as usual. The other man was so captivated by this fruit That he made it his life's goal to protect it carefully. And so he built for himself a cabin nestled against its great trunk. And each day he would care for the tree. He trimmed its branches in order to provide a more fruitful yield. He fertilized the soil so that the fruit could grow greater and more refreshing. In times of drought, he made sure to water the tree so that it would not dry up. Even one day a forest fire came sweeping through the woods and he painstakingly dug a trench around the tree to protect its branches from the flames. And each day this man enjoyed the fruit and enjoyed a life far more fulfilling than he ever could have imagined. This story is familiar because we are living like one of these two men. It is a great privilege to be the dwelling place of our Lord and our Creator. It is a great gift, and we can do with that gift one of two things. We can put it in our pocket and use it as a safety card, as a fallback plan, as a morning refresher to help encourage us amongst our normal days. Or we can carefully tend after it and listen quietly to its nudgings on our heart and experience fulfillment like never before. There's a passage in John chapter 17 where Jesus gets down on his knees and prays to God. And the reason that this passage is so striking is that Jesus is literally praying for you and I. Our Lord and Savior is down on his knees offering prayers on our behalf, not just the disciples. In fact, he goes so far as to say those that come after the disciples, those that know me because of their words, this is who I am praying for. 
And I want you to listen carefully and hear his words that he has uttered on our behalf. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. What a beautiful prayer. A prayer that we see come to its fulfillment when that curtain in the temple is torn in two. A prayer that God might graciously gift us his glory and his love. That he might go so far as to allow his son and his spirit to live within us. To dwell within us. So that we can come back to him every moment of our lives. So that we can be deeply rooted in his love and his glory. What an incredible privilege that is. That we don't have to travel miles in order to encounter our God. That we don't even need to come into this building to feel his presence. That he is dwelling among us and within us. It is a great privilege, but it is also a great responsibility. Francis Chan talks about this idea of the thrill of obedience in one of his recent sermons. And he shares that every time he has felt God nudge him or convict him and he has acted upon it, he has experienced God in a new and refreshing way. In this unity that Jesus calls us to. That every time God has laid something on his heart and he has acted upon it, that his life feels complete. He goes so far as to say is when we are convicted and we leave reading scripture or leave the church or worship or a time with God and we feel conviction, but yet ignore it, that we are doing exactly what the devil wants. We are closing the doors to the temple in our hearts. We are ignoring him. You see, convictions and nudgings in our hearts are not there so that we can drain our bank accounts. They're not there so that we can feel guilty and ruin our days. They're not there so that we can fill up our time with chores that God has given us. Those nudgings, those convictions are the God that is dwelling in us 
encouraging us to seek his fruit and his refreshing unity in ways we have never done before. And that when we listen to those nudgings, those urgings from Christ who indwells in us, we will experience God in a new way. God is not far from us. He is right with us. I want to share a few times in my life where I felt one of those urgings. And even though I greatly tried to ignore it, ended up acting it out. One time I was in college and it was my first week of school and I bumped into this guy in the cafeteria and he just rubbed me the wrong way. I don't know if it was something he said or the way that he held himself with his friends, but I decided that I didn't like him whatsoever. And I remember that I would talk about him behind his back to my roommates and my friends. And I would point out each and every one of his flaws that seemed to just fixate in my mind. He didn't know me. He had never heard that I was doing these things. But one day as we sat in chapel, I noticed that he was sitting a few rows in front of me. And as we worshiped, I felt God nudge me. And I suddenly felt guilty for the way that I had been treating Drew. And I felt like I needed to offer some sort of apology. But I quickly pushed that under because it would be awkward and uncomfortable. And I left chapel assuming that I would forget about it. But every single time I saw Drew, that same nudging came into my heart. Until about a month later, I finally came to him and said, Drew, I got to tell you something. First of all, my name's Pete because I've never met you. And second of all, I've been talking about you behind your back. There have been things that you have done that have irritated me. And instead of bringing those to you... I have instead gossiped about who you are. And Drew paused for a second, and he stuck out his hand and says, I forgive you, and I respect you. Why did you feel like you needed to tell me these things? You had never said any of them to my face. And I said, I just couldn't get it out of my heart. And Drew and I began this new friendship. And I felt this weight lifted off my shoulders because God had nudged me to open the temple doors of my heart in order to salvage a relationship, in order to experience him in a new way. Another time, I was on a missions trip, a short-term missions trip in San Francisco. And we were serving the homeless on the streets. And one particular day, we were serving in a soup kitchen. And as we sat down in the soup kitchen to have conversations, a man named Cedric approached myself and a few of our friends. And he said, will you eat with me? And so we did. And as we chatted with this homeless man and began to understand his life, we developed a new friendship. And just before we left, he said, I can only imagine how much you do in your hometown. And I paused for a second and I said, what do you mean, Cedric? He said, well, if you're willing to come all this distance, to travel all this distance to serve the poor in my city, I can only imagine how much you do in your own city. Cedric didn't understand. This was my one-week missions trip. This was my time to serve God. As I got on the plane, I couldn't get his words out of my head. As the weeks went by and I went back to school, I still, it weighed on me until finally I came to those few friends that were in that conversation with me and I said, what do you think about serving in a soup kitchen on Tuesday nights? 
And we all agreed and we began serving downtown. And I remember every Tuesday afternoon, I dreaded going into the city. I knew that it would be uncomfortable. I was scared to talk to these men and women that were so different from me, that looked different, that spoke differently, that smelled differently. But every Tuesday night as we headed back, my friends and I excitedly chatted about the experiences that we had had, the new friends that we had made, and the opportunities that we had had to share our faith in Christ's gospel. And our faith was so rejuvenated and brought so much to life. You see, when God had put Cedric in my life and urged me to take this step, it was not because he thought my Tuesday nights were too empty. It was not because I needed to do this in order to make it into heaven or to put a stamp in my Christian passport. Instead, God knew that this was how I would experience his refreshing power in a greater way. Finally, I remember one time I was laying in my bed and it was midnight. I was in my sophomore year at college and my heart was heavy. Friendships weren't working out the way I thought they were. I was struggling to pass my classes. Sports weren't working out. And most importantly, my relationship with God felt distant and dry. And I remember feeling like I needed to talk to God. And so I quickly said a prayer while I laid in bed and tried to forget about it. But I I couldn't fall asleep. I kept feeling this urge to get up. And to speak with him. And so finally I got up and I put my sweatpants and sweatshirt on and I went for a walk. And as I walked, I just began spilling out everything that was happening in my life. Praying and crying to God. And two hours later, I came back to my bed feeling rejuvenated. Feeling excited about what God was holding for me in this time. You see, God did not nudge me because he thought I was already getting too much sleep. God did not nudge me so that I would check off the devotion on my list that day. God nudged me because he needed to talk to me. Because he knew that I needed to open my my temple doors to his refreshment. When we listen to the convictions of our heart, when we listen to what God tells us in Scripture... When we listen to those nudgings that come as we sit in the pews and worship together. Those convictions that come from our accountability partners and those that are are holding us strong in our faith. When we act upon those things, we experience God in a new way and we find that that relationship that is so dry is suddenly quenched. And that's our challenge today. As we leave this place, let's commit together for the next 30 days to listen to those convictions. At first, it's going to be difficult because our hearts are so dry that we can barely remember what it feels like to be convicted and nudged. But let's take 30 days and each day... Let's write in a journal how God has spoken to us that day, how we feel like our hearts are being nudged. It might start slowly, but I'm confident that as we continue to do that, we will continue to hear God in more powerful ways. And then let's take it a step further. When we write that thing down, 
act upon it. It's only 30 days. When we feel convicted to give to a cause that we have heard great things, act upon it. Don't wait until our finances are better. Don't wait until the end of the year. When we feel convicted to serve amongst the poorest of the poor, act upon it. Don't wait until the next short-term missions trip. There are needy around us everywhere. When we feel convicted to open up our scriptures in an inconvenient place, act upon it. When we feel God nudge us to conduct our business lives differently, act upon it. And I am confident that if we as a congregation begin acting upon the convictions that God lays on our hearts, our temple doors will be open and he will dwell within us in a way that refreshes us unlike ever before. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have chosen us to make your dwelling place. Lord, we thank you that even though we oftentimes feel that you are far away, that indeed your presence is right here with us. Lord, we pray that you would begin nudging our hearts. And Lord, that when we feel those nudges, we recognize them not as a chore or a task, but instead as an opportunity to experience unity with you, to experience your glory and your love. Lord, let us spend our entire lives quietly listening to your needs, watering the roots of your dwelling place, and listening to your soft voice. We pray this in your name. Amen.